you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 37 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. And in the previous episode, we talked all things intellectual property. You will recall with uh, senior counsel Glenn Gibbons, he came in to discuss the third edition of his book, Gibbons on Trademarks Law, which has just been published and actually very popular episode with Mm. a lot of people. And... um even as we speak, our producer is running down to the trademark office to get the fifth court, our logo, yes. everything else, yeah, yeah. your name, my name, uh, registered as I wonder, will Glenn mm. do a freebie for us I if we need will, that? Yeah. You know, that mm. would be great. Yep. That would be great. OK, well, today we have yet another judicial guest in studio uh, and we're delighted to welcome recently retired High Court Judge Deirdre Murphy to the studio. Deirdre recently gave an interview to the Irish Times uh, in which she did not hold back with her views on the current state of the legal landscape. Can I describe it like that, Mark? Do you I think, agree? Yeah, certainly. The, the 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 view in the Irish Times editorial, and I think in Justin McCarthy, Justine McCarthy's column, was that she had uh, she she had broken Justine ranks. Justine McCarthy, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I can't wait for this interview. Yeah. She's going to be fantastic. I know she is. I know she is. So, really looking forward to discussing those topics that she raised in a little more detail. But first, we're going to discuss three cases that you've identified from the Decisis website. The first case concerns the refusal of critical skills employment permits. That's for people who want to come into the country who say they have critical skills that we need here in Ireland. Uh, and these concern applicants from India and Pakistan. This is the case of Singh versus the Minister for Business, a decision of Mr. Justice Mulcahy. I think that's the first that time I've heard, read out his name. So the uh, newly appointed judge. Yeah, yeah newly appointed <laughs> judge. And uh, he granted an order quashing a decision of the Minister for Business. The Minister mm. for Business? Is mm. there such a thing? Mm. Uh, to Business, review. skills, enterprise. So it's a junior minister. Junior no, no, minister. Senior minister. minister it's what business. used to be the Minister for Enterprise so and Employment. So that Simon Coveney then? I think it is Simon, Co- Simon Co- Coveney. Industry and Commerce. Can we go back to the Desomali era? <laughs> okay. And uh, so anyway, he refused two such applications for permits. Yeah. So so as you said, this is a the judicial review um, the applications were made from people who were in the country already and had been offered particular jobs. Both of them had been given jobs um, in relation to uh, the, the basically sort of managerial type positions, one of them in a pizza franchise and one of them in a retail organisation. Um, and the problem seems to have been that when they made the application, the person in the department who was processing the application had assigned the jobs the wrong code and had given no reason for this. Now, when the matter came before Ms. Justice Mulcahy, it was argued by the minister, or on behalf of the minister, the minister had discretion in relation to this, and this wasn't something that was really judicially reviewable. However, the fact that the wrong code had been assigned to these positions meant that the decisions had not been properly processed. And therefore, uh, Ms. Justice Mulcahy took the view that, that because no reason was given for the wrong assignment of the code, um, that the, 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 the decisions had to be reviewed afresh. Okay, very good. Okay. 
Next to a, a case concerning the welfare of a young woman who'd been made a ward of court, this is the case of in the matter of KK, a decision of Ms Justice Highland in the High Court. In this case, the woman had been made the subject of a detention order, but the legislation then changed, bringing into question her detention. Was it was it legitimate then, Mark? Is that exactly, it? yes. So the, the as as listeners will know, the, the, this new regime has come in under the assisted decision-making um, legislation. So the old concept of wardship doesn't continue in the way that it once did. Now, this is a woman who had for had various issues that required her to be made a ward of court um, and a detention order had been made under the um, previous legislation, which I think was the Court Supp- Supplemental Provisions Act 1961. But because that legislation had been repealed, the question was, did the state have the power or did the, sorry, did the courts have the power to make a detention order? And what was Justice Highland held was the court had an inherent jurisdiction to make such an order. So notwithstanding the legislation was repealed, that in circumstances where this was a woman who was under the, um, who, who, who required the supervision of the courts, that yes. in, the, in her own best interests, the court could make the... Um, okay. the, the Again, very required. sensitive case, exactly. obviously, where the court yeah. has to intervene. Okay, and finally, our third case. This involves the adjudication procedure in construction disputes. This is the case of McGurran Civils ROI Limited versus K and J Townmore Construction Limited, a decision of Mr. Justice Simons. Uh, in this case, an award had been made by the adjudicator, and the contractor sought to enforce it in the court. However, the other party defended it on grounds that there was an error in the award. Exactly. So. Adjudication is a relatively new procedure within particularly construction disputes. And the issue seems to be that um, what used to happen was that if if there was an issue concerning a a contract, the whole thing kind of, the the construction would stop pending arbitration or litigation depending on the type of case. The purpose of adjudication was to ensure that things would keep going so that basically the adjudicator could make sort of interim awards and require that certain payments are made with a view perhaps to um, to, to the matter being resolved at a later stage on a financial basis. That's my, the, 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 of the broad brush stroke. Um, so what happened in this case was that an adjudicator had made two awards for 39,000 and 6,000 respectively, um, but there was an error in the, the award. And so when the when the contractor looking for the payment brought the the enforcement proceedings, and that's that's what you do in order to get an enforcement order, you go to the courts. Um, the the other side said, no, there was an error that, that this that, that they're looking for the wrong sum. Now they admitted the error, and then and so when when it came to the hearing, which Justice Simon said, well, once the error had been admitted, then basically it was Why didn't just you do a question that at the start. Well, took a long, a long, a long journey exactly. to get to that admission yeah, yeah. at the very end. Okay, well, thank you for those, Mark. We're back shortly with retired High Court Judge Deirdre Murphy. Silence in the Fifth Court. So we're delighted to be joined in the studio today by Deirdre Murphy, a retired High Court Judge. Um, Deirdre was called to the bar in 1979, uh, called to the inner bar in 1999, and was a High Court judge from 2014 to 2023. But I also discovered in my researches that back in 1976, you were a winner of the Irish Times debating <laughs> competition. Is that right? Yes, along with many of my High Court colleagues, Indeed. as somebody pointed out recently. Yes. And was were you was that for the Hist or the Phil no, or the Law Society? It was for Maynooth. Maynooth, I yes. see. Okay. Much, much... Uh, uh, 
see more satisfying. I think my, my research my research has suggested that you were in Trinity. Is that is that? I was in Trinity. I and, went. I did a, I did a degree in French and history in Maynooth. Right. And then I did my legal studies in Trinity. So I covered I both sides of the Fantastic. divide, as it were. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you you um, you finally uh, retired from the bench this year, yes. and you have been in the news for uh, in recent times because you uh, did an interview with Mary Carolyn in the Irish Times, in which you raised certain issues concerning the legal system and the legal profession, which we'll come on to in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. I suppose what I'd like to start by asking is, what was it that brought you into the law in the first place? What attracted you to law? Well, initially, after I did a degree in French and history, as I say, in Maynooth, uh, and I was uh, then embarked on a master's on Daniel O'Connell and French public opinion, working out that I'd get six months in Paris out of it. And during that year, the exemption for an arts degree was going to be phased out in King's Inns. In other words, the three-year course was going to become a four-year course. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to do the ends, maybe I better do it now. And really, it was as haphazard as that. And I never finished Daniel O'Connell in French public opinion. Maybe I should go back to it now. Um, so so you, you were clearly attracted by the law, but it was the, it was the change in the rules that made you think well, I better get it in was, there quickly. Yes, about, mm. about doing it then. And I, I always like an argument. <laughs> and then, so you, you, you started off in, uh, did you do your first year devilling in Dublin and then down to the southeastern circuit? No, when uh, in order to fund my lengthening studies, I worked in theatre in Dublin on the administrative side in the Oscar Theatre and Dublin City Ballet and the Pavilion which, Theatre. Which was the Oscar Theatre? The Oscar Theatre is now a mosque. Um, it, in, the one in Clonsky? No, mm. no, 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 oh, yeah, no, 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 in Sandy Mount. Yeah, yeah, Sandy yes. Mount, yeah, just over the, the train tracks, wasn't that it? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Oh, wow. So, trip down um, memory lane, wow. Well, that was, Louis O'Sullivan was the owner and uh, he was very inventive for 1970s Dublin and uh, we had some interesting shows over the, the few years and then he had a, a dream to have a ballet company that would be able to do the four acts of Swan Lake. So he formed a ballet company. And then we took over the pavilion in John Leary. And I, I did that while I was studying for the bar. And when then you say I stayed you did that, on. you weren't a performer in the ballet or were no, you? Right. No, 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 no. On the administrative side. And um, the, though my colleague Robert Houghton met his wife through Dublin City Ballet. Uh, she was yeah. a dancer in Dublin City Ballet, and that's how they met. Wow, yeah. So, how did you leave all that really exciting bohemian world behind? Well, uh, that was that was the big choice. Wow, uh, I had an offer of a uh, job in London in late '79, early '80, and that was the decision: was I going to go that route, or was I going to go to the bar? And I decided to go to the bar, uh, and I went to in early '81. I went to the States for oh, about nine months, did some theatre work there um, and then came back in the autumn uh, and started at the Inns. I see. So then you started in the Inns or, or started the, or sorry, the bar? Sorry, started at the bar, yeah. See. With Dennis McCullough, who was my master. I see, right. And did you follow him into the into the personal injuries sphere or was did he have a wider practice than that? Well, it, no, it, I'd always intended to go down on the southeastern circuit. And um, Being a I grew woman. up in Wexford. Yeah. And so I, Devlin was more casual then, I think, perhaps than it is now. I would have done motions for Dennis, all the usual things. 
But I went on circuit from day one, from that November, joined in October, was on circuit in November. Somebody gave me a malicious damage claim. Hmm. Yeah. And who was the sit- sitting judge in the southeast? It was Dermot Sheridan, Sheridan at that Sheridan. stage. Yes. And in fairness, he loved law. Right. He really and, wanted and legal And did you straight away start wearing the county jersey? Was it Wexford solicitors that were looking after you or was well, it Wex- wider than that? Well, initially, I had a, a, a few friends from college who were solicitors. Victor Blake, who's recently retired as a district court judge. Yes. Uh, he would have been at college with me in Maynooth and he briefed me. But mainly it was Wexford solicitors, yes. Mainly. Okay, okay. And yeah. the circuit, will you tell us about the circuit in those days? What was it like? I mean, you'd, you'd go, there was, like now on the circuit, there's loads of judges and there's, you know, a hearing in Tipperary and there's a hearing in Wexford and mm. there's a hearing in Carlow, maybe. Yeah. You know, but then everybody kind of trundled along. The caravan would move from town to town. Wasn't that the way it worked? Yes. And what was the benefit, I suppose, for, for junior people was the opportunity to get on your feet. And most people did get the opportunity to get on their feet. And also, Maureen Clark used to tell the story that when you were a very junior barrister, you got easy work like right-of-way disputes and will suits. And then as you got more experienced, you got plaintiffs' uh, personal injuries actions. Then when you were really experienced, you got defence actions (laughs) for insurance companies. But that was the progression at, at, (laughs) at the bar. But you did get a real grounding in all aspects of law. You were doing landlord and tenant law, you were doing licensing law, you were doing trusts, crime, yes. family law, all of it. And it, and in, uh, I must say for Dermot Sheridan, because he loved the law, he was always open to having a, a legal argument. Sometimes, mind you, he might say, I'll take that up again at four o'clock on Tuesday in Nina, Ms. Murphy. <laughs> Right, so off you'd have to been, head. Yes, yes off, yeah. okay. But, but I did the, a lot of fisheries law <laughs> as well. But in those days, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine these days, but, but, but I think I'm right that there, there were nine towns in the southeastern circuit yes. and you would base, and, the, and the, the one judge would go to one town for a week and yes. he'd hear all of the civil and criminal yes. materi- matters and then he'd move to another town and do the same. And basically each term would be all nine towns and then you'd start again the next term. Yes, and it... it but what it did give is all of the junior barristers practicing on that circuit a wide grounding in law, which I think the current arrangement has diminished because people tend to get slotted into certain areas of law very quickly. And my impression is, and I don't know if this is so, that the civil side of circuit practice has diminished hugely. It seems to be crime, family, and I'm not sure that there is a very substantial civil list anymore. You'd know better than I do. Well, the list is, is obviously there, but the but I suppose, the, yes, the, there's very much division between the, the family and criminal and civil divisions yes. in a way that in the old days, everything would have been dealt with together. Can I just ask, did it, was, was everything that needed to be heard, heard um, when... It was a little we, slow. Yeah. <laughs> After uh, Judge Sheridan came um, Sean O'Leary and then it speeded up significantly. And unfortunately, then it got too fast. The decision was made before the case was heard, or at least before everybody was finished arguing. Very bright man, but didn't have an awful lot of patience for the process. He had wonderful rules in family law. Each adult was a unit. Each child was half a unit. You take the available money, excluding overtime, and you divide it according to the units. And... uh, there was a great story told about him in, uh, when he was on the Midland Circuit. 
that uh, a uh, farmer and his wife were separating. I think it was before divorce. And she wanted to go back home and she wanted 50,000 to build a house. And so the case started and on the farm was a piggery. And he valued the piggery at 10,000. And her expert valued it at 100,000. So Shawnee says, I have the solution. I'm going to give you that piggery. That way, you'll be getting twice what you're looking for and you'll only paying a fifth of what she's asking for, right? <laughs> very clever. He was very bright and he certainly increased the fortunes of practitioners on the Southeastern Circuit. Well, that's, says you, that's, that's something that I'm sure they weren't complaining about. No. Criminal law. You always yeah. were interested in criminal law as well, Deirdre, weren't you? Yeah, and I, I did in, in the... And on Early circuit, days, it's, on circuit, you're yeah. very close to individuals and crime and the jury and all that sort of stuff, but I aren't didn't, you? I didn't. The main criminal work that I did as a circuiteer was uh, fisheries law. And because there was lots of fisheries law. OK. And taking illegal salmon out of the Slaney, are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, poaching, but also trawlers. And one of the things was the process of arrest. And then they would be handed over by the guards to fisheries officers at the pier there was no power to do that. And so there were a lot of fishermen walked free on that basis. And they actually had to change the Fisheries Act. There was a Consolidated Fisheries Act 1959. By 1963, I think it had been amended multiple times. I would have imagined that it would be very hard to get a jury in Wexford, for example, yes. coastal county, to convict a fisherman. They'd have a natural sympathy. Is that is that the case? Or am yeah, I well, being well, too romantic I, in my notions? Particularly with uh, the, the, the sort of the European law aspect, one certainly tried to get it resolved before it went to the jury yep. on legal issues. Yes. Uh, and, and that was generally, at least my, in my experience, successful. Now, you, you obviously had a great, brilliant junior practice. And then, of course, silk came calling, if I'm not mixing my metaphors. Yes. And you decided to become a senior counsel. So when yeah. did that happen? 1999, I'd been in, I suppose I was 18 years at the bar at the time. I can't really remember what the the, the decision was, if you like. It was, um, I'd had uh, Noel Whelan, the late Noel Whelan was devilling with me the year before, so it was beneficial for him. And I felt if I were going to move, I needed to move at that point. And that's really how the decision arose. And that really involved much more Dublin-based work? Almost exclusively. Almost and how did you feel about that? Fine. Good. Okay, well, that was, yes, it's good work. Absolutely good work. So what was life like as a, as a senior counsel? Because we're going to get on to your, your, your life on the bench. But just before, uh, before you got to the bench, did you enjoy being a senior? Yes. I've always enjoyed being a lawyer all my career. And I got to practice law the way I want to practice it for 42 years. Um, and it's been absolutely satisfying in every iteration, I have to say. Okay, brilliant. Um, okay, so so let, let's move to the bench. Yeah. So... You were a high court. You've just retired. Mm. Okay. In March, yes. March, okay. And and like, how are you feeling about that? I'd say you're still full of beans. You'd love to be uh, up there, would you? Well, I'd, I would like to be doing something, obviously. I don't like the word retirement. And I certainly intend to find something interesting to do. And yeah, so it's, it's all right. So nine know? years on the bench. Mm. Okay. And and what areas did you generally, like, were you, did you move through all areas? I, I, I associate you with criminal law for some reason on the bench yeah. as well. Well, I did I did a, a lot of crime. I did chancery for three years. Yes. I did judicial review. So I went pretty much everywhere, except I didn't do any family and I didn't do any commercial. But I did all of the other areas. I do remember on the, after my first week at the bench, on the bench, I had four written judgments to do. Wow. Mm. 
That was not. daunting. <laughs> And, and, and you can't say the dog at my homework. Sure you can't. Well, no, this is true. This is true. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so and, and just the reality of being uh, a judge. I mean, uh, recently we, we've had a new number of high court appointments recently mm. and I'm congratulating people mm-hmm. and I'm saying to them, you know, wow, because one or two of the individuals are very strong advocates like you were. Mm. So you get up onto the bench and you have to say nothing and listen, mm. you know, and then make decisions. Mm. Is that hard? No. I, I think... You have to be quiet in criminal trials. Not so much in civil trials. I think barristers uh, appreciate getting an indication of what way the judge is thinking. And a judicious question now and again might be of assistance to them in either persuading their client and in in settling cases. So I I would like to think I wasn't interventionist in, in civil cases. But as I say, a judicious question here and there might help resolve matters. There'll be a small touch of mood music. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I mean, that is so valuable. Absolutely. When you're in court, you're always trying to see what the, what the judge will think. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. OK, now you, you, you decided on your retirement that you'd give an interview to Mary Carolyn mm-hmm. in the Irish Times. Mm-hmm. And you made some really interesting points, really interesting points about the current state of the law today. Mm-hmm. A wonderful comment you just made in response to Mark's question was, you say, you know, I practiced law for 42 years and I practiced it the way I wanted to practice it. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, essentially, the bar that I joined in 1981 allowed allowed for the practice of law uh, as, dare I say, a moral uh, practice or a moral profession. We had the system allowed access in a way that I don't think it allows access anymore. You had three to four hundred barristers in the law library. You had solicitors firms dotted all around the country. A big firm in those days might have been seven solicitors. Big firm now is over 300. And all of those firms had access to the three to four hundred barristers in the law library. And there was genuinely an independent referral bar. If you got a query, uh, there was a collegiate aspect which is often vaunted about the bar. You could go to somebody and discuss what the problem you had was, seek advice and so on. Now, some were more collegiate than others. Uh, Some mightn't have been terribly inclined to help, but there was that atmosphere around the place. And so every solicitor had equal access to the best brains in the country, the best legal brains in the country. And I, I think that has... That's kind of gone a little bit, yes, has it? Gone the, a lot. The, the famous, the famous. <laughs> for, I mean, outsiders might have heard about this cab rank rule. Yes. I mean, did that exist in your day? Do you think? Well, some some were running a limousine service. I think, but, <laughs> okay, uh, fair um, but, it, but in it, it was the openness of the legal um, system to every solicitor dotted around the country. No matter where you were from, you can pick up the phone and get. The best legal minds, you know, Paddy McEntee could be retained by somebody down in West Cork for a criminal trial. The, 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 the access was huge. And can I just ask, yeah. when you talk about acting, practicing in a moral way or an ethical mm. way, I mean, you don't get to choose your clients, obviously. So no. if you have a client who you do not 
like or you don't approve of in a moral yes. or ethical manner. I mean, the, yeah. the, the general cab rank rule is that mm. you, you take them on anyway and you yes. act to the best of your ability. Yes. And is that... And how, how do you square that from a, from a moral or ethical well, point Well, you don't have to like the client sure. to run the case. Mm. My, my view is that every case has merits. The challenge is to find them. Yeah. Right? And then to run the case on the merits. Uh, because that is the, the, the best chance of getting the best outcome. And, and that was the approach I would take. I, I would have been known for being fairly good at cross-examining the clients. Your own clients. Yes. Yeah. yeah, To find out, well, what is the case? What case do we have here? To find out what the merits are and then to make sure that we're advancing the case on a sustainable basis. And uh, as I say, my practice was based on on individual solicitors from Wexford uh, and around the country and some who, who, there were always solicitors who were prepared to speak truth to power, Mm. to put it up to uh, state agencies or the state itself. And they were in small firms all around the country. And, and those small firms, it seems to me, are now being absolutely oppressed by administration and regulation. And I, I think they're dying off. And, and can you be more specific? I mean, if, if somebody comes to, goes to a, a small solicitor's firm mm. and says, right, I, I'm dealing with a state agency or I'm dealing, with, say, with a bank or an insurance mm. company and I don't feel I'm getting... I don't feel mm. the available courses of action are giving me satisfaction. What is to stop that small firm bringing the judicial review, bringing the plenary summons, whatever claim is necessary? I mean, is, is, are they more closed off than they were 15, think, 20 years a, ago? I think there's less of them. And I have no uh, sort of evidence for that statement, but my impression is there's less of them. Secondly, they are so beset by administration and regulation that having the time to work up a case that might be challenging is, is possibly not there for them. Do you mean law society regulation as a solicitor's well, firm or, the, or, or the, um, the court's administration? European rules and regulations, the administration, all the administration costs. A solicitor who I won't name, who had a friend down for the weekend and they were sitting back having the, the bottle of wine and watching Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. And he said, when it got to the point where they were um, trying to get rid of him on the basis that he had missed the statute of limitations. He said he never heard another word of the film. He was just thinking, oh my God, have I got something in the office? Right. Uh, and so, so that, the that. Oh, do we process it in time? Absolutely, yeah. But, but it's, it's what, you know, the explosion of lay litigants after the financial crisis suggests uh, a problem with access to law. So, so what about these wonderful corporate law firms that are... Mm that are populating our key, the keys of our, our major cities. We've had guests in here. We had a, a wonderful man, Dominic Carman, son of the famous George Carman, mm. who talked about he was over to preparing a report and he was talking about the uh, amalgamation of these firms to become bigger and mm. bigger and bigger mm. and more efficient and mm. all that sort of stuff. I get the feeling that you're not a massive fan. I mean, obviously everybody has their role to play, mm. but you're not a massive fan of that development. No. See, the big corporate law firms are businesses, right? Their interest, and they're perfectly entitled to do this, I should add, is the bottom line. They are not committed to the public good or the common good. That's not their raison d'etre. Their raison d'etre is the bottom line. And, and that, that, it seems to me, that the, the growth and uh, proliferation of them is 
part of the thing that's skewing the system. The other part that's skewing the system is there are far too many barristers. And what, what used to be a collegiate body is now, as I hear it, people cutting each other's throats for work. And that doesn't give rise to a very collegiate atmosphere. And so th those two things have, it seems to me, skewed the system significantly. And how do we change that, Deirdre? I mean, I, I think a lot of people listening to this will be kind of nodding in agreement to a certain extent. Mm. And I'm just wondering, how do we address that? I mean, is it state intervention? Do we need a more proactive kind of government intervention to ensure that the smaller firms... Like before we came in, we were having a chit-chat about mm. well-known Wexford solicitors. We were just talking about the late Simon Kennedy. Yes. Wonderful man, wonderful man. And we did a special on this programme about the Eileen Flynn case. Yes, and he was the man who... You were, were you in that case, were you? Yes. Were you? Oh, that yes. I did not know. I listened to your podcast. Okay, very you had, good. You had well, some things not quite right. Had we not? Okay, go. well, that, that wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> wouldn't be the first time, but uh, we'll talk to you afterwards. Yes. <laughs> but, yes, but, but, it was like, one of the earliest cases I did as a junior counsel. I was only three years. That's a good example hmm. of opportunities. Yes. You know, basically, when we started that case, we knew we weren't going to win in Ireland of the mid-1980s. But sometimes it's important to fight cases, to hold a mirror to society, even if they are not ultimately going to be successful. Michael Kirby, who's the former Chief Justice of Australia, came to Ireland about 10, 15 years ago and apparently in addressing the Law Society, he said, uh, opened his remarks by saying law is a moral profession. And he recounted a story that as a young solicitor in Australia and New South Wales, uh, he got a case for an Aboriginal student who was a student activist. And at that time in New South Wales, Aboriginals were only allowed in the downstairs of the cinema where there were plastic seats and linoleum floors. They were not allowed, a Rosa Parks type situation, they were not allowed upstairs where the carpets and the soft seats were. So he bought six tickets for himself and five of his friends and they presented themselves in the upstairs area for entry. And of course, there were barred entry and there was a kerfuffle and uh, they, were, they were prosecuted for some sort of offence. And Michael Kirby defended them and challenged the legality of the discrimination and they lost the case. And when he retired as a chief justice years later, the judge who had presided at that case uh, that he had lost wrote to him and he said, you know, I had to follow the law and, and you know, um, the case was lost. He said, but I want to tell you that a week after that case was lost, the cinema changed its policy. Okay. Yeah, but so the, the case was, that, yeah, but the case was but lost. Isn't that but the, the problem, Deirdre? I mean, you say that law is a moral profession and then our old friend, the law, gets in the way. Um, and I am sure, I am sure in the course of your history as a judge, mm. you saw decisions where you might have had sympathy for people you had to find against. Yeah, but no, 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 no. I think the essence of law being a moral profession, I suppose, in a, in a constitutional democracy, everyone's equal before the law. That, that's the core value. So everything is about fairness. And so, the, you know, and we all know life's not fair, never has been, never will be. But the, the worthy, worthiest of human pursuits is the pursuit of fairness. And law is a powerful weapon in the pursuit of fairness. And I think it's, that's what I mean by saying law is a moral profession. The approach that you're taking to it is moral. You won't always, there will be cases that will be lost. Like, again, Eileen Flynn would be one case. 
the David Norris case is clearly another. Yes. Mm. They served a function. Mm. They served a real function in holding a mirror to society. But if, That's also mm. the, the purpose of law. Yes, and absolutely. But, but if, if you're, sorry, sorry, if you're sitting sorry, on, the, uh, on a case like that mm. and you take the view that the, that the law is about fairness yes. and I, I can't think of a moral, uh, sorry, <laughs> a modern equivalent of Eileen yes. Flynn, but one where you feel the law is wrong and I need to find for the, for the, for the person, mm. what do you do as a judge? Well, you follow the law. I mean, it, it's that mm. that's that's yeah. that's okay. easy actually. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Right. In a, in a certain but, but, set of circumstances, yeah. you might find yourself saying, mm. "I am compelled mm. to find in this way." Mm. Right. That's a matter for the legislature, yeah. Yeah. But, not but, for me. But to right? go back to Peter's question, you are yeah. making the unfair decision. But it isn't an unfair decision. Mm. It's not. See, I think mm. you're mixing up mm. the two concepts. Yeah. Right. The concept of fairness. I think is wound up with bound up with the issue of access. Okay, for example, the constitutional value that everybody is equal before the law becomes increasingly meaningless if more and more people have no access to the law. So it's it's about access, yeah. and the it seems to me that access is diminishing, not increasing. Yeah, yeah. You know? Now, because we, we, we are unfortunately time limited, yeah. I do want to bring you on to the issue which you have raised and which has had a response from the Attorney General of what's yeah. described as the model litigant. Yes. Can you explain for our listeners what is meant by a model litigant? Well, this actually arose because from the catalyst for, I, I did a lecture to the Hardman Lecture Series in 2019 on the role of the state and responsibility of the state in litigation. And I suggested two things that could be done. One was the state shouldn't be suing itself in our courts, as is happening increasingly, because government departments that used to handle large areas are now delegating many areas, and they sue each other and they sue the state. And that is a huge waste of, of court resources. And the second thing was that the state should act as a model litigant. And I had heard of the model litigant obligation when I was, I was at a World Bar conference in Sydney in 2010 and somebody stood up and said, oh, but what does this mean for the state as model litigant? And I thought, what does that mean? And essentially, in Australia, they have a policy. It's not law, it's policy that the state should behave properly in the conduct of litigation. Now, in Australia, they don't have a Bill of Rights like we do in, in Article 40. But I think there's also a, a constitutional, it's arguable constitutionally, that the state has a duty to act as a model litigant. Because Article 43, 1 and 2 say that the state will, as far as practicable, by its laws, defend and uh, vindicate the rights of the citizens. And in the event of injustice done, to vindicate the pers life, person, good name and property of the citizen. So it seems so to me that that is... It is really almost a requirement that the state should act properly. In and the so what that means is that if the state thinks that the other side has a, a, good ac a good cause of action, that they should deal with them in a fair manner, that they should not drag out litigation unnecessarily, they shouldn't get involved in kind of the, well, the, 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 the rough tactics of law. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? No, it's, you should read the paper. <laughs> it's in the Irish Judicial mm. Studies and it's quite a lengthy paper mm which, as I said, the catalyst for it was that the, the High Court is swamped, yeah. absolutely swamped. 
and that if the state acted properly in the conduct of litigation, that swamp might be at least uh, diminished, if not drained. I looked at the Irish policy as announced by the Attorney General. It's missing two core elements. So this of, is the, 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 the recently announced yes. one in response to your interview with Mary Carroll. Oh, no, 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 no. That was announced mm. long before right, my interview. Probably in the pipeline, long yes. before yeah, my yeah. interview. Mm. It is to be mm. uh, commended. But the policy as announced is missing two core elements that are in the Australian policy. Yeah. And they are that the state should assess its liability in respect of a claim promptly. And secondly, in the event that it is a legitimate claim, it should pay it without litigation. And those two elements are not in the policy as uh, stated by the Attorney General. But And it seems to me that there is a constitutional underpinning of the notion of the state acting as model litigant. But does that not happen automatically, Deirdre? I mean, straight away, if you're briefed by the state and if you're lucky enough to get a brief from the state, mm-hmm. first thing they'll ask you is to advise on liability. Yes. And the barrister will be given full opportunity to, to comment on whether this case is winnable or not. Yes. And then if you come back and say, well, actually, I think this is a case you should settle, they will settle. In many cases, that happens, but not in all cases, Peter. In many cases, that may happen. They may follow advice of... of Council, dare I say it, such is the clamour for work among barristers. One might be concerned that barristers wouldn't be prepared to tell the state that they should settle. So, Can yeah. <laughs> Can you not believe that? Perish the thought. Oh, my God. Um, so <laughs> that is what, what they call, is that an appalling vista? Did I ever hear that phrase used in the law before? But anyway, there you go. No, so, point well made. We are running out of time, Mark, believe it or not. And right. if we if we go on much longer, we're going to have to edit and we can't edit anything out of this interview because it's been absolutely brilliant. Okay. Yes, the only thing I, w- I would... You had signalled that you were going to ask me about new Ireland for law policy. Yes. Oh, yes, please do. And... As I say, the the article, the talk I gave and the article I wrote was prompted by the fact that our courts are swamped. Hmm. And my comment on that would be, how is this going to work? Hmm. The idea seems to be that the commercial court will expand to deal with the international litigation that will be brought into the country. Well, if it expands, then the areas of judicial review, family law, criminal law, ipso facto contract. I would be very concerned Again, as I say, these firms are in the business of law. Their focus is on the bottom line. The state has a higher duty to uh, ensure that we have a system that upholds the rule of law and that is driven in the interests of the common good. And serves the people of Ireland. Precisely. I mean, but the, if they were, for example, I'm going to wait and see how it pans out. Are they going to use a Dubai model, right? Without human rights abuses, of course. Are they going to set up a court that may be staffed or presided over by retired common law judges, which is what Dubai did, who's going to pay for it? Are those who are going to make the money from it pay for it? And I'd be really concerned that it doesn't diminish the capacity of our courts to do what the more fundamental uh, job of courts is, which is, uh, as I say, to uphold the rule of law. See. So, unfortunately, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring this interview to an end. But we do have our final question that we need to ask you. <laughs> I know is, what the movie is going to be, by the way. I, I'm uh, going to make can, a prediction as to what the movie is. But anyway, go on. Well, can you recommend a book or a film or both that you think would be of interest to our listeners? The book is the book that I would say has had most impact on me as a lawyer. And that's George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London, published in 1933. Wow. Mm. Right which uh, my father gave me when I was uh, in my late teens. 
And I was just totally taken by George Orwell. I read every screed that that man has ever written, all of his novels, all of his journalism, all of his correspondence. And what what always he writes wonderfully, but what he brings to every issue is an open mind. He assumes nothing. He questions everything. And it's, again, an attitude I think that we could adopt both as lawyers and as citizens. Let's see if Peter's right about the film. Well, have you uh, a film to recommend? Do you have a film to recommend, Deirdre? Not particularly. Well, the, the movie I was going to suggest was Thelma and Louise. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because of the little story you told me beforehand about your road trips with another very eminent uh, member yes, of the bench. Yes, yes, the two yes, of you yes. heading into the open top car and Well, hopefully the we world. never go off a cliff. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I know our colleagues would love to hear about those trips. Well, I think many of the colleagues would know that Mary Lafoy and I do a trip most Septembers. And you travel the world. Trips. Yeah, road yeah, trips. Yeah. Hire a car and off you go. Yeah. Well, there you go. The Thelma Louise. Is that, am I right? No, that's not <laughs> Thelma Louise. <laughs> okay, fair There's enough. There's no theft involved, <laughs> okay. uh, as far as I know. And no and cliffs no, so and, far. And no Brad Pitt. <laughs> and no Brad Pitt either. Dead right. Yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, Deirdre Murphy, thank you very much for joining us in, on The Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, retired High Court Judge Deirdre Murphy, for coming in and giving us such a wonderful interview. Mark. Fantastic. Yeah, we could definitely have had two or three uh, interviews with her. and Maybe we'll get her back. Wasn't it great? Wasn't it great? Okay. I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios, and the wonderful Lee Brennan on the desk out there who's recording this show for us. And obviously to our listeners, if you want to get in touch, we're always delighted to hear from you. So from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.